My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. (laughs) If you're into fashion, you might know Lily Cole best as a model. She was scouted while walking through Covent Garden as a teenager. And at 15, she shot her first editorial with, no less, Stephen Mizell for Vogue Italia. Not bad for a first outing. She was the youngest model to appear on the cover of British Vogue and was listed by French Vogue as one of the top 30 models of the 2000s. And she's worked with all the great photographers, from Mizell to Nick Knight, Arthur Elgore, Paolo Reversi, Emma Summerton... You name it. Actually, loads of incredible pictures with Tim Walker. She's in one of my favourite Tim Walker pictures. It was shot in 2005 for British Vogue in India. And it's the one where she's perched up that spiral staircase in the really long, pale blue dress that reaches the floor. Ah, oh, so nice, that picture. Anyway, she put all that on the back burner to study the history of art at Cambridge University. Lily's always wanted to do a lot of big things with her life. And these days, she doesn't model so much, but she is still acting. I first saw her, I think, in the Terry Gilliam film from 2009 called The Imaginarium of Dr Parnassus. And later this year, there's a film of the Martin Amos novel, London Fields, with Amber Heard and Cara Delevingne, and Lily is in that one. She also cameoed in Star Wars, The Last Jedi. She's in that fabulous party scene in the casino, do you remember? It's awesome. Now she's working on a lovely new project with the Bronte Society, about Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights, and I'll let her tell you all about that. But the reason I wanted to interview Lily is because she's big into sustainability. She really cares about the environment and she's also a social entrepreneur. She runs a company called Impossible that launched in 2013 and it's about changing the world through tech. It's a B Corp and it does a few different things. It began as a gifting or sharing platform and she explains all about that in this interview. It's really interesting. 
and it's since evolved into a wider technology company that Lily says is all about trying to use tech in a positive way and doing that through collaborations. She's also really big on this idea of boosting women in tech and encouraging women to step into this area that I think has traditionally been quite male dominated and can seem a little bit intimidating. And Lily's lovely when she talks about how we can break down those barriers in tech. I'm so happy that we got Lily on the show. We have some really cool conversations here about the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, about sustainability in fashion and how we can get that message out, about protecting the environment and the natural world. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. Thank you for listening, my lovelies, and for all your support, which as ever is enormously appreciated. And please do subscribe to the podcast in iTunes if you haven't already. We're also on Spotify. And if you fancy getting in touch with me, you can, and I would love it. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. Okay, Lily, now I know that you have loads of other interests, but I just want to start talking about the environment because I do often think of you when I'm thinking about sustainability and the fashion industry. For as long as I can remember, you've been the model that I've looked to as someone who just understands green, if you like, eco. <laughs> Where does that begin for you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, thank you. I'm uh, going to touch is the right word, but I feel pleasantly hearing that. Um, <laughs> the word green. So I grew up in London and so I'm a through and through kind of bred city girl and had very little interest in nature for most of the kind of beginning of my life. And then when I first started learning about climate change in school, I remember it feeling like a really dry topic that didn't really connect with me because I was more kind of emotionally connected to human rights issues or animal right. rights issues. And then I guess through my teens, as I started traveling the world, two things happened. One is I started falling in love with nature. And now being in England, you know, I, I've, I just have a whole kind of different relationship to nature. And I think that was spurred initially by traveling abroad and seeing, you know, slightly more impressive giant mountains or trees or whatever. And also, um, when I started researching and learning more about climate change, I kind of just recognized that every other issue that I might care about mm. was kind of climate change kind of sits underneath and will impact and also will become arbitrary if we don't deal with our environment first and foremost. It's really interesting to me that you learned about that at school. I'm obviously older, but at school oh, we never touched on that. Yeah. I know that new generations really do. Yeah. Yeah, I know mean, you'd hope, right? <laughs> I'd be worried if they're not learning that in school now. Um, I'm 30, so I was, I'm talking about like 20 years ago, probably, you no, know, just under 20 years ago, and I was about 12, I think. We did a project, I remember, on the ozone layer and the hole mm. in the ozone layer. And then I remember a, a specific kind of class exercise where they had different areas of the room that were dedicated to different charity issues. And you had to like choose where to stand if you wanted to stand in the kind of environmental area oh, or wow. the animal rights area or the poverty area. And interestingly, I really remember not knowing where to stand because I felt really moved by pretty much every table in that room, except for the environmental one, because that one to me felt quite abstract and less emotional. Right. Um, and then I did a kind of, yeah, as I said, I put a 360 turn. And now it feels to me like the most important issue, which is not to undermine all the other issues and charities that uh, we have today, but it feels to me kind of the one that is like the rug underneath everything else. Plus, I just really really love nature. So <laughs> it actually does come from an emotional place now as well. I've just been researching this big book, which comes out in October, which is really kind of diving deep into this climate change question. And it's actually quite depressing, isn't it? I mean, it can be very, it's heavy. It's heavy. 
It's so heavy. So you're writing a book. I'm writing a book that comes out in October. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it looks at the kind of intersection between social justice and feminist and climate issues and the way that they all link, as you say. Like you can't join one group, right? There is no one group because they're all mixed. So I think of you as that kid in the classroom. They're all related. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely see kind of feminist issues related to climate change. I'm actually also writing a book on these topics. And I agree. It was, it's, I mean, trying to be as optimistic and positive as possible and looking at like kind of solutions and solution based thinking. But it's so actually quite hard to stay in that trade of thought and not accidentally go off into the negative because the data is overwhelmingly quite negative when yeah, you look at it. And nobody wants to hear the doom and gloom perpetually. They won't stay with you. So you have to imbue it with some hope. Talking of books, the first green fashion book that I ever read was Tamsin Blanchard's book. And I was just with her in London recently. And you wrote the oh, forward nice. to that. Yeah, I did. It was 2008. So it was a long time ago. It's called Green is the New Black. And I've got a little note here of a line that you wrote. You wrote, as many people are beginning to make ethical choices about their transportation or what they eat. It's funny how few are shopping green for clothes. That's interesting mm-hmm. now, isn't it? Like 10 years later, looking back, how do you think that we've evolved? Well, I'm really optimistic that we're going in the right direction. I was at Copenhagen Sustainable Fashion Conference a few weeks ago, and I was really blown away by how many organizations um, and companies and people were present there from lots and lots of innovative new young startups to also the really big brands and, and companies being players on that on that scene. And it feels like sustainability in fashion is not yet the status quo or the mainstream, but it definitely feels like it's becoming a more mainstream movement and something that people are much more conscious of and thoughtful of. And I think it's more complex than food. I don't think, you know, we have, it's a, they're more complex supply chains that have different points around the globe that products are made. So I don't think food is always the perfect analogy. At the same time, I think the food industry and the changes that have happened in the food industry do provide a template from which fashion can build from. Yeah, I think so too. It was interesting. You were on a panel with Tim Blanks. And again, I took a note of something that you said there. You said that you think ultimately it's a branding challenge. And you also said that you think we're meeting that to some extent. I mean, the panel was about how do we communicate about sustainability outside this room or outside that kind of conference. And I thought it was Mm -hmm. really good that you put a kind of positive take on this because Again, we need to come back to this idea that we need to motivate people with positivity for sure. It can't just be all like, oh, no, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. But interesting yeah. what you said about a branding challenge. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you think we are we are communicating these messages? Well, I think historically, like 10, 20 years ago, if you, if you t- talked about sustainable fashion, it probably had a quite bad branding in general. And people would think of like thrift shops or nothing against thrift shops, but not always the best design in the world. And like hemp dresses was often the kind of joking reference people would make. And I think we've come way beyond that. And now when you have Stella McCartney making beautiful clothes with, you know, sustainable credentials baked into, you know, I'm not saying she's perfect, but baked into a lot of what they do. Mm. I was given a pair of Nike trainers that apparently like the most sustainable trainers they've ever made. My point is when you have not just sustainable products, but really well designed products and coming from lots of different brands and voices, then I think the kind of concept of sustainability actually becomes more fashionable. And I think now it's actually quite a fashionable concept and term as opposed to maybe 10 years ago, it was 
it was seen as somewhat anti-fashion. Yeah, and people thought that you were completely crazy if you wanted to get involved in it from the inside of the industry. I mean, when I started talking about this stuff, like perhaps five years ago when I wrote my first book about it, people literally, my peers would be like, what is that? That is weird. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I had a few people say to me, like, aren't you like biting the hand that feeds you? This idea that it was kind of criticizing the industry, uh, yeah. or criticizing, which in some ways is true, but at the same time, the industry has to evolve, right? <laughs> and because it's not sustainable. And so assuming the industry does evolve, then it can become an accepted and fashionable way to think. It was interesting at that talk, the Copenhagen one, the reaction of the audience to a different point I made. I don't know if you remember this, but um, I was drawing attention to the fact that it's not, there's a kind of deeper systemic issue with fashion or any industry in a kind of capitalist system becoming sustainable, which is not just about how you make the objects yeah. and how much water they use or how much they pollute or how you pay your workers but also how much we're expecting consumers to consume mm-hmm. and the kind of relentless production and churn of, of fashion and of capitalism being kind of contradictory to the idea of sustainability and the need for us to rethink our business models in ways that are more holistic and truly sustainable which I don't think many of these big brands are doing you know even if they are making a lot of headway they're frightened and I understand why they're frightened. I mean, when you raise that idea of people suggesting, are you biting the hand that feeds you? I hear this all the time because I work at Vogue. So it's like, really? You can stand on a, at a talk or on a panel and you can say, we need to buy less. But I think that I can. And it's mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, I can because I'm not talking for the brand. I'm talking for myself. And I feel like I have a responsibility to be, to question that taken as red idea that more is better it isn't better it's not better for the planet I mean I think we need to be able to ask these questions and not just hide behind I don't know it's a lie really isn't it that we need more and more and more and also we don't have the resources to support it we know that it is it is a and tricky totally ways of I think in, innovations are happening on the business model side um mm. I just my friend just set up a company called Silphy which I just bought some things from yesterday and their kind of promises it's not only environmentally friendly clothes, but they have a kind of re- repair service. So they'll fix it for free the first time and then you can send it back for more repairs thereafter. There, there was a few other people at the conference who sell um, consignments or secondhand designer clothes. So I think there is innovation happening yep. in terms of like encouraging people to reuse and recycle and repair. And I think we need to see more of that, basically, not just making sure it's fair trade or organic or other kind of providence type questions absolutely but it is actually about questioning the system and the power imbalances but also the way that our economy is shaped and I suppose a lot of that stuff in Copenhagen was raising very tentatively perhaps the idea of reshaping the economy Mm -hmm. I mean there's so much focus on materials but if you look at the circular economy it's also about how can we sell services as well and experiences rather than just products? How can we introduce the share economy? How can we keep products in the loop? That stuff is the hard stuff, but it's the key, right? Well, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm with you. That makes me think about the gift economy. I was so interested, and we'll get onto the work that you're doing with Impossible, but I was so interested to hear your views on the gift economy. I wonder if you might like to share them. Yeah, sure. So I became somewhat obsessed by the idea of the gift economy when I stumbled across it about five or six years ago. And we set up a community platform online that connected people to share their skills and services, sometimes things too, but it was mostly skills and services for free on the basis that that's how, if you look historically, humanity has operated for tens of thousands of years. Most anthropologists agree that originally it was through kind of what's known as the gift economy and a kind of 
favor-based network before mm. money evolved um, where you would help each other out in return for the idea that other people will help you out. And I think there's huge social and psychological benefit for that type of behavior, mainly a really a sense of community and a sense of belonging that I feel like our kind of contemporary cities maybe we lack. I having grown up in a city, as I said, mm. I felt that I really, I, I was missing something that I wasn't aware of, I was missing, if that makes sense. And I think it was a sense of community. Uh, I'm still a huge kind of advocate of that concept. It was really interesting to see whilst I was doing that work, the kind of explosion of what's now known as the sharing economy, which mm. isn't really exactly the same. I mean, there are some examples of sharing economy type platforms that are more gift based and then many that are just different versions of kind of traditional commerce. Um, but it has been interesting to see those changes. But you have to take money out of the equation if you're talking about the gift economy, right? So there's no expectation of a reward beyond gratitude. Well, some people actually would think, that, you know, you could argue that charity and giving money to charity is part of the gift economy. So I don't think it's necessarily about oh, yeah. taking money out. But it's about the, the exchange that's happening and whether there is an exchange. So the kind of the key difference between a gift economy and anything that is akin to like barter or, or normal commerce is that when I do something for someone else, I don't expect a return. That would be a gift economy. Whereas if I do something for someone else in expectation of, of having something in return, i.e. money or a bartered object, then it's not really a gift economy because my motivation is different. That's kind of in the simplest terms what the difference is. And the, the kind of research shows that when you do something as a gift, i.e. without an obvious something in return, i.e. you might help a neighbor or help a friend, um, you release endorphins that make you happier, you release oxytocin. And then the other person who receives is believed to have what they call like a positive psychological debt. So that feeling of like needing to be grateful or to pay it forward that then creates kind of the bond, like the social bond. And it's a social bond that I think is the most interesting part that then you create these relationships between people through the act of giving. I mean, in a way, it's elementary. It's part of human nature and how we have carried on forever, right? But for some reason, that's not how our world is set up. Yeah, I mean, I think you still find it everywhere. The British government says that it's like a shadow economy that's actually bigger than GDP. If you look really? at the number of things that people do in the UK. Yeah, if you look at the number of things people do in the UK that is not for money. So that's predominantly will be like caring, looking after family, mm. looking after friends, sometimes looking after neighbours. It's a neighbour kind of area and the stranger area that I think that we have probably much weaker presence of the gift economy than we did historically because our communities are so large now that most yeah. people you don't know and therefore it's harder to to enact those relationships but in our kind of core circles I think that is how a lot of people operate and I think definitely the happiest people operate that way Absolutely. Um, with, a, with their own type of community around them. Lily, where did this come from in you? I mean, as we began talking about how I knew you first and foremost as a model, but you have such wide arranging interests and you have a degree in art history and you're now working in the tech space as well as being an actor. But why don't we dial it back just to the beginning? Talk to me about how you became a model. I became a model somewhat accidentally when I was uh, 14 and I just got asked to do it. And I enjoyed it a lot for a period of time and I was doing it part-time alongside studying mm. uh, but I, I always had many other interests and so yeah I was never doing it full-time and very quickly like I said I had acting when I was about professionally when I was like 16 17 and then by that time I, by the time I was 18 I was focused more on acting and then I went to university I just kind of follow my interests combined with opportunities as they come 
Well, that makes sense. There, there is a lovely interview with Nick Knight on Show Studio, and I, I really liked mm-hmm. your take on that. Um, there's a bit in there where you say, you know, you had a great time, you loved it. I think your words were not to belittle it. It was great, but one of the things that frustrated you about being a model was that you're playing out somebody else's vision. There's only so far you can go in terms of how creative you can be because it's somebody else's idea of what they're trying to create. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it from a very practical perspective, like you're eating catwalks, you're walking up and you're like being made up and then walking up and down, mm. you know, like yeah. a plank of wood. <laughs> and, uh, We're not meant to talk, not mostly. No, and in photo shoots, you're, I mean, if there is some expression and you're trying to help deliver on the photographer's vision and you, you can have ideas that you suggest, I'm not saying there's nothing, mm. but you're very much carrying the creativity of everyone around you. So the photographer, first and foremost, the hairstylist, the makeup artist, the designers, and as a creative person, I guess I, that was never really going to be the, that fulfilling for me as a job. Although I do feel really grateful that for the period of time that I did do it a lot, I got to work with all these very creative, talented people and be exposed to their way of working and their way of seeing the world. And I feel like I learned a lot through that process. So no, I don't mean to belittle it. Yeah. I just, I'm always wanted to, I don't know, I have lots of other things I wanted to do. And so I um, shifted my priorities. But you did get to work with Vivian Westwood. If we're talking about sustainability and social justice and campaigning, she's kind of an obvious leading voice in the fashion world. Yeah, yeah. And I worked with, and I'm still friends with her, and I've worked with many, like a whole, I could write a long list of amazing people, many of whom I'm still friends with. So I feel, as I said, I feel grateful for it, but there's just a reason why I'm not doing it still now. Why then did you choose art history or the history of art when it came to doing your degree? Originally, I was supposed to do social political science, and I'd gotten a place to do that. And then, I don't know, I deferred it for two years, and I think I was slightly worried about not loving that course, which may have been misguided. And so I started to look around at different options, and I had a friend who was doing art history. And it's something I hadn't studied before. I hadn't done any kind of GCSEs or A-levels in. And I've always loved art, and so it just felt like, oh, actually, I'd really like to understand the history of it better. Mm. So yeah, that was a thought process. <laughs> University can be, I always feel that younger people now coming up through education have a harder time because it's getting more and more expensive to be able to do any of this. But I I studied politics and it was just, I mean, it was 20 years ago. It was an extraordinary opportunity just to think and learn and learn how to think and indulge yourself in terms of just reading. I mean, it was an amazing thing to do, really. When I look back on it, I think, God, lots of kids will never be able to afford to do that. My education was free. That's how old I am. <laughs> Mine was nearly free. I mean, they had done the, the top-up system by then, so it wasn't by any means as expensive as it is in some countries like the US, and hopefully we're going more in that direction here in the UK. Yeah, It is an amazing privilege to basically take that time to learn and read, isn't it? What do you read and learn now? Are you a person with a load of books by your bed? Uh, I do tend to have lots of books on the go, yeah. And I kind of go backwards and forwards between fiction and nonfiction. I find fiction generally more enjoyable to read. Um, it's like more of a kind of, I guess, an entertainment factor. And But then I find probably I read mostly nonfiction because I find it it's a nice way to keep learning about new ideas or the world. What did your parents do? Were they academic-y? Uh, my mum is an artist, a writer, and she also sketches. And she's very intelligent, but she, I wouldn't say she's academic. She didn't go to university or anything like that. And the same with my father. He's super intelligent, but not especially academic. And he spent most of his life on a boat, actually, and, yeah, kind of carved out an existence traveling. Yeah, right. All right, then. Let's talk about some of the other people that inspire you. 
I had never heard of Muhammad Yunus. What does he do? And can you share a little bit about why you find his work inspiring? Sure. He's, I mean, he's wonderful. So I first knew of his name because of microfinance, and that's what he's most famous for. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. How ridiculous that I know the names of models and photographers, but have never heard of someone who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. <laughs> says something about sure our culture. <laughs> anyway, yeah. go on. So yeah, he won yeah, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for microfinance, which was a really clever system. Um he'd set it off as an economics professor in Bangladesh and he'd helped set up this way of predominantly women in villages taking out small loans so that they could help set up their own businesses yeah. and become financially independent and it was hugely successful and still is to this day um and so that's what he's most famous for he's less famous for his work on social business which is what he's devoted most of his time on since then and that's the area that I kind of intersected with him because I have been for a long time interested in a kind of concept of social business so because I was working in fashion like and I felt like I was working with all these companies that have a huge impact Mm. and it felt more common sense to try and get companies in general to, to change their impact and have a more positive impact than see kind of business as a negative force that's causing problems and then charities kind of like the band-aid that tries to fix some of those problems in the, in the kind of like historical old view of business versus charity. So for a long time, I looked into this concept of social business without really having a structure to put it in um, and founded a few businesses on that premise. Um, And then when I was setting up my last company, Impossible, I was really searching for a kind of social business structure to put it in. Um, Now it's formed as a B corporation, a benefit corporation, which is probably one of the most mainstream social business structures and only launched in the UK about, uh, we we were one of the first UK certified companies about two years ago. But prior to that, when I first set up a company, there wasn't a kind of clear framework to use. And I stumbled across Mohammed Yunus's work on social business. Um, his is called Yunus Social Business. And I went out to Bangladesh with him to study that model. And basically, the thesis is the same. How can you evolve capitalism into a kind of kinder, fairer version of itself? Um, and he has quite a clear framework that he uses to define what makes a social business. What was that experience like of going with him to Bangladesh? I was great. I mean, it was wonderful to see the... It's actually wonderful to see the Grameen Bank, which is the microfinance programs in action, which wasn't the purpose of the trip. But seeing as we were there, we went to visit them. And you literally have like a little village where the bank, quote unquote, is just one of the designated huts Mm. where they do all the transactions. And they have rules kind of around how who can go into the hut and how it works. So that was really quite beautiful to see. And I mean, it convinced me of over his thinking and hence we then became a unisocial business in our first few years of operation until the B Corp status became viable here. I want to talk about B Corp but actually would you like to just explain what exactly is Impossible? Sure so Impossible began as the gifting sharing platform that I described and we still have that element of it which is called Impossible People and is an open source um, platform for communities to use and then evolved into being a kind of wider uh, technology company. So I met my partner in the process and he now runs the company and we do, we try and see it as like more or less like trying to use tech in a positive way. And we do that in collaboration with other companies and other startups and also through incubating our own ideas and startups too. What was your pathway to tech? Because again, you're, you're such a chameleon person because you were like art history, modeling, the environment, 
but tech is like in a way it's something universal that we all need to use and that can enable us all to progress but it's also to me I feel like it can be an intimidating thing oh it certainly can and it's a difficult thing to work in um it happened really accidentally just because I had this idea for building a online network for a sharing gift economy and so I had to work in tech in order to do that and then as I started to investigate that space and meet people in the tech world, I became really inspired by the idea of the kind of power of technology and the power of technology to solve problems and to be leveraged in a positive way. I'm not saying it always is, but I'm saying there is the potential there. God, of course it is. And it's also kind of ridiculous that I still feel that intimidation around the idea of tech. It's just because of conditioning, you know, like told at school that you can't do maths or whatever it is. Tech is our life. You can't have no concept of technology. Otherwise, what are you? Luddite woman who's hiding in the corner with no phone? (laughs) I think I can tell you in some way it's intimidating. If you don't know how to code, which I don't, it's a language, you know, it's like we're all dealing with it, but it's a language that we don't speak. And so there's a lot of kind of seeming kind of mystery and magic in these devices that we don't yet understand. Oh my God, you're right. um, And I think actually for that reason, it's really important that more people do understand it and and more girls more women absolutely yeah code vogue australia has an amazing initiative called vogue codes they just had the event about a week ago which is all about encouraging young women to get involved in tech and it's so powerful and brilliant that's a nice idea lily you mentioned b corps it's a brilliant thing i love it but i wonder if you might like to just in your own words explain why it's a great model and how it works with you Sure. So I think for a long time, there's been people like me, um, entrepreneurs who've tried to set up social businesses without having a kind of clear definition of what a social business is. And it's been a bit fluffy, that definition. And there are a few different frameworks now that people can can follow. But B Corp, I'd say, is probably one of the most mainstream that's broken through in, in recent years. It's a certification program that pretty much any business can go through that audits how you run the company impact your company has across like multiple vectors so on the environment on the employees on your kind of core reason for being and you know what what impact the business itself operationally has um the suppliers the supply chain so all it's that in a very kind of rigorous way and then also i don't know if it's a mandatory but i think it's I think it's nearly mandatory. It's like it's one of the kind of main things that you have to do in order to score enough points to get the certification is to edit your articles of association as a company to make yourself accountable, not just to shareholders, but to all stakeholders. So your community, your employees, the environment, your customers, your suppliers, um, you kind of make a legal commitment to all of them that's equal to your shareholders, which I think is super interesting because if you look historically at capitalism and, and the way that businesses are structured, they're mostly structured in a way that makes the company legally accountable to its shareholders only. Absolutely. Um, and that's how I think you get into these situations where you have these very big companies that have become public, so have potentially thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of shareholders um, who are all anonymous. And the CEO will be legally accountable to those people and and the only clear definition of how they can be held accountable is profit. I was so about to say that. CEO, yeah. yeah, so CEO can justify, you know, and actually is legally required to do any kind of tax loopholes they can, squeeze the business as much as possible to maximize profit. And that's their job legally. Even if actually it turned out all the shareholders wanted to run it in an ethical way, there's not really a system in place to have that 
communication. The legal structure is around bottom line profit for the shareholders. And so I think B Corp really kind of shifts the needle on that and encourages a different type of legal framework and a different type of auditing process. And one of the things that's quite interesting that they do is it's an evolving system. Obviously, it's not perfect. It's in its kind of infancy, but they connect B Corps with each other. They're constantly evolving kind of their own processes and certification. And they also give you as a company targets of how you can improve and places where you're weaker in the audit, which is really important because for all the companies that are trying to be good, quote unquote, it's a, you know, it's a mindful of possibilities and learning and having a kind of, kind of some kind of guiding principles, helping the wider community of business for good evolve and, and really become a business for good is important. I'm always amazed that we feel so locked down by culture just because we've done something one way for a long time. We feel like that is the only way. It's funny when it comes to the economy that we have this profit or nothing kind of impetus. I mean, it doesn't serve so many of us. Yeah, I mean, the system is so flawed, right? And I think people are realizing that more and more, both in terms of how it squeezes people at different ends of the spectrum um, and also as well as the environmental impact it has. So the system has to evolve, like it's evolve or die, really. Um, Mm. It's not a sustainable structure. Mm. And I think we can be optimistic that it is evolving, you know, and that these conversations are happening and and that the governments are helping, you know, in in many countries subsidize the movement towards kind of responsible business practices. And I think also consumers play a huge role in this by voting with their money, basically, by supporting businesses that are trying to move in a more positive trajectory. So I remain cautiously optimistic that that it is moving in a better direction. Yeah. Before we finish, I want to ask you about a couple of the other businesses that you're working with under Impossible. I love Wires Glasses. I met someone from that company in Sydney, actually. Who did you meet? It was somebody who came from Zimbabwe, I think. Oh, Jimmy. Could have been. Must have been Jimmy, yeah. I love Wires. So Wires was set up by a friend of mine, Yaya Norman, who's an amazing designer. And we've collaborated on a few projects with in the past, from like furniture to ceramic speakers. And he had, I think he said he was on a holiday and he had like one piece of wire and he like handmade a pair of sunglasses for himself from, from the glasses. And then he connected with Jimmy from Zimbabwe and we made a first collection using people in Zimbabwe, the local African wirecraft edition. I don't know if you've seen this, but they, yeah. they, they, well, they, they make, make toys. They make all sorts, don't they? Exactly. They make beautiful things with wire. So we had them make the first collection. They were handmade in Zimbabwe with a single piece of wire that would be wrapped around into the shape of glasses. And then we obviously put the lenses in. They did really well. And then off the back of that, we evolved a second collection, which I just recently launched, which is a slightly more sophisticated adaptation of that idea. So it still is made from a single piece of wire, but it has an invisible hinge just behind the the lenses, which means that you can fold the glasses down and they don't lose their shape because the first one would go kind of like a bit wonky when you collapse them, (laughs) which it can be charming, but cannot be charming depending on whether you like that look or not. Um, So these ones are like really beautiful and professional and, and fold down. And then the concept from an environmental perspective is really about trying to minimize waste because per our point actually of how do you evolve business models so that you can make kind of capitalism compatible with sustainability, we've approached it in a modular way. So instead of encouraging people to buy new sunglasses every year or every six months or whatever the industry currently does, 
we promise that the frames, that the metal frames, will last a lifetime if looked after. And then the rims, which is the eyepieces, you can remove them and replace them. So if we design a new collection of rims, you could just, if you already own the frames, you could buy the new rims and say, you go, oh, you know, I really want to change my look and I want to get big cat eye, pink colored lenses <laughs> this season. You would only have to, you wouldn't have to replace the whole glasses. You just have to replace the two little yeah. rims. Very clever. Yeah. And then the way they're made also is interesting that most sunglasses, when you make them or glasses, they'll take a large piece of acetate and then cut out the shape of the frames and then everything else gets thrown away. Whereas these are 3D printed. So we have no waste in our production process um, internally. Brilliant. So the, when, the, when the rooms are printed, we only print what ends up on the glasses, if that makes sense. Lily, before I let you go, I need to talk about something completely different, but amazing. Let's talk about the Brontes. <laughs> like you haven't got enough to do. I mean, you've got a lot to do. <laughs> Just a segue in. So possibly I took, after having my daughter, I took a, like a little bit more of a back seat and I now spend about a day a week overseeing the different projects we have there, like wires. Okay. But I'm not, I was previously full-time and I'm not full-time anymore, um, which means I'd had my own time back to do creative things like writing and acting and directing. So I was approached by the Bronte Parsonage Museum to do a commission for them for the 200th anniversary of Emily Bronte. And we combined that with a previous commission I'd already agreed to with the Foundling Museum in London because Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights, Emily's uh, novel, was a foundling in the 18th century. What a terrible really word. Speaks- it's a terrible word. Oh, it a terrible word? I don't find it a terrible word. Good. Okay, why? why well, I just think it's so sad, you know. I don't know. Oh, it's little- definitely sad. I don't think it's a terrible word, though. Yeah. I don't have to care. We're just kind of just, of course, it just, you think, it just breaks your heart, the foundling. And the stories are absolutely heartbreaking. But yeah, I don't see that as terrible. I see that as necessary actually to have a conversation about because mm. it's a part of our history. So the approach I took at, at, at it was looking at why did Emily make Heathcliff a foundling mm. coming from Liverpool in the 18th century? Um, her dad apparently was a big social campaigner and her brother had visited Liverpool not long before she wrote the book. So it's very likely she'd have been influenced by the kind of an understanding of the social conditions of the time. And there were foundling centre across the country, including to the area in which she lived in Yorkshire. So I started researching through the Foundling Museum archives what it meant to be a foundling in the 18th and 19th century in England and what it meant for the parents as well. And it's like the stories you unearth and the kind of statistics and the conditions are so insanely surreal and horrific. So we dove into that research and then used that to write a short film script within which we filmed recently and we'll be playing that film which is a kind of fictionalized account based on real stories and that'll be playing in both museums from august through the, to the end of the year sounds amazing are you a massive wuthering heights fan yeah i mean it's always it's, it's been my, on my favorite list of like- come on i cry just even thinking about the name i cry <laughs> that's why i can't handle foundling <laughs> it's just so emotional come yeah. on it's an amazing book, yeah. I mean, I just reread it because of this project mm. for the millionth time, and and every time it's like, yeah, it's as riveting and has new facets that I hadn't noticed previously, and I'm more impressed by it every time I read it. Yes, and you know those books that you read first when you're 14, or I probably was 14, yeah. and they break your heart and change your whole world. If you then pick them up 20 years later and they're still as good and they have the same effect, that is a very rare thing. Exactly. Very rare. It is, yeah. 
And it's why the book is still alive and relevant over 150 years later. You are a polymath person, Lily Cole. Thanks. I don't know if that's a compliment, but thanks. I'll take oh my it. God, of course it is. It's amazing. I mean it as in the highest complimentary sense. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to us. Really, really appreciate my pleasure. it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you.